Oh yes, good evening everyone. Glad to see you all back. It's a beautiful day and beautiful Lord's Day. And I appreciate that you've all come out to, to hear, as Josh preached about this morning, he preached about preaching. And I appreciate that because that's exactly what I'm about to do. And preaching is for the edification of God's people. And I'm just so excited and so blessed that I can have this opportunity to talk to my brethren and my family and my friends and all you who have helped build me up so much that I could just have eh, 30 to two out 30 minutes to two hours of your attention tonight, <laughs> just so that we could look at the Word of God and, and see the things that are within it and and look within ourselves and see that that those things are true and and to apply those things to our lives. First, I would like if we could open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 26 and look at verses six through nine. We're going to be reading from there in just a moment. Again, I just want to thank you all for being here. And, and just echo again that I would not be the person that I am today without the many faces that I see. You, Each and every one of you have encouraged me so much along the way. More than you even know. Every small gesture, every smile, every handshake in the foyer just means so much to me and has built me up so much as a Christian. And you, you must understand that. And I appreciate that. And I feel as though I have come a far way, though I have a long way to go. And so in Acts chapter 26 and verses 6 through 9, Paul is giving his defense to King Agrippa. And then he said, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God could raise the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so began the apostle in his defense to King Agrippa. And he used this opportunity not just to defend his own name, but to edify and glorify the name of Jesus Christ, using himself as an illustration of the mercy and the power of God. And so if I'd like, I'd like to imitate Paul here. And I'd like to do the same sort of thing and, and take a page out of his book and use an illustration of my own life to show the power and the mercy and the grace of our Lord as a springboard to answer a very critical question for all of us to which we'll address in a moment. First, I want to say this. I want to give a personal thanks to my mother because she raised in me, instilled a belief in God. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate that very much. But I squandered that. I squandered those efforts. At age 12, due to my life circumstances being just so difficult, so tumultuous, I blamed God. I just, I was overcome with just doubt and grief and confused by the denominational religions of the world and just tossed about in every direction. And I said, forget this. There's nothing to this. Just a lot of hooey. People say to comfort themselves in times of stress. And I said, I don't need that. As a result, I became hopeless, dejected, without any sort of purpose. And I walked with no belief in any sort of God for a while. And I'll tell you, a good brother, Mr. William Allison, Gilbert, you may know him as, bridges at the Stop Church of Christ at times. He took some time to talk with me about the existence of God when I was very young, and I still remember that. And a lot of those kernels of truth, the, the seed that he sowed, stuck with me until I had the opportunity to begin studying the truth. 
with members of the church. See, I was before that point, I was chasing these momentary glimpses of pleasure. And despite the fact that I had obtained somewhat of a belief in God from my conversations that I'd had with, with Mr. Allison and, and, and the good brother Bilbert, it was just, it wasn't enough for me to commit. I, I wasn't satisfied with that. And so I, as I grew older and older and as I made my way to college, I became deeply entrenched in sin. I did horrible, horrible things. I lied, I cheated, I stole. I abused people who did not deserve it. I gave myself to sensual pleasures of drugs and alcohol, sexual immorality, and my own pride more than anything. And it wasn't until I hit a rock bottom moment when I realized that I was throwing all of my efforts into an abyss, that I was sprinting toward the grave until I could accept the truth that there was a God and not only that there was a God, but that He deserved my obedience. So I decided I would not have it any longer. I would not live that way anymore. But I did not know my direction. I did not have a purpose. My sister was saying this, and it's very important. She said, she was in the kitchen and she said, man, I wish I could find some direction in life. She's a freshman in college and I truly deeply relate to that. Because as a freshman in college, you, you really don't feel like you have much direction. And that's exactly where I was. It just didn't have a, a direction. I mean, I knew I wanted to pursue God, but, but where? So I began studying with different religious people, uh, the Hare Krishnas on campus, um, Catholic priests, Baptist ministers, Pentecostal apostles, Catholic priests. I already said that before. But I studied very much. And I was searching for the answer to a question. And that question was, who am I? And more specifically, when I say that, I mean, who am I in relation to the I am? Who am I in relation to God? And this is something that we all need to come to a great understanding of. Not just so simple as, well, yes, God created me. Yes, yes, like obviously, and X, Y, and Z. And just have the mental knowledge of these things, but allow these things to sink deeply within us and to cause us and urge us on to action in our everyday lives. As we ask ourselves, who am I? The first thing that we're going to say, just a knee-jerk reaction for most people due to pride, is, you know what? And this is what I said. You know what? I'm not sure that I need God. I'm not sure that I need any kind of redemption because I'm a pretty good person. I love people. I mean, when the, I'm at the self-checkout in Walmart and they offer that little charity, donate a dollar to hunger or whatever. Like, I, I give the dollar sometimes, you know. I pat my friends on the back. I tell them, good job. I'm not so bad. But we, we, went, we must just completely dismiss these thoughts. We must get rid of those thoughts. Because Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20 is going to just wipe those thoughts completely clean. Ecclesiastes 7.20. That passage reads like this. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20. Surely... There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. For me, at least, this was a very hard pill to swallow completely. That I was not righteous in the least. I had no righteousness to speak of. There is surely no righteous man on earth who does good and who never sins. People my age, we would read this passage and we would say, I'm ten foot tall and bulletproof. 
I don't do nothing wrong. Every step that I take is gold. But that's a lie. We are all sinners in the sense that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all broken, temporary, imperfect creatures. We're sinners. John chapter 8 and verse 34 says that anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. When you are in sin, it enslaves you. You may not realize it, but it slowly grips you more and more. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 parses this out. As we throw more and more into the void that is sin... We find nothing but death. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. And what is sin? Sin is my imperfection. Sin is the guilt that I bear. Sin is violence to God. Sin. Sin is the reason that Christ was crucified. Sin is what we do to a loving Savior who would give us everything. When we would give him nothing. We tell ourselves that we are good. But this man came to reconcile the damage that separated us from our creator. And you know what we do? For most of us, almost daily, we spit in his face. We reject that. And why? Because every lie, every cruel thought, every sideways glance, every doubt, every distrust, every sedition... Every lustful intent and thought is a violence to God. It paints us red with blood. Paul said again in Acts chapter 26 and verse 9 of the same passage that we read earlier, I myself was convinced that I ought to, to do many things against the name of Jesus Christ. Paul knew this. Paul knew that he was persecuting Christians. Paul knew that his sin was crushing him, that he was throwing it into a void. But when he was Saul, he did not realize this. He was ignorant to that. He thought that his divine path was to murder the people of God until that fateful day on the road to Damascus when he heard those words from Jesus Christ, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so if I could... I would like to take us all down our own road to Damascus and remind us that we're not perfect. Remind us that inside or outside of these walls, we need Jesus. And so if I could, I'd like to just ask us all, if we could just take a moment to consider maybe the moment or maybe a critical moment where we were broken by our imperfections. Where we realized, I am not perfect. I am not complete on my own. And I cannot bear this all on my own. Do you remember that time? Can you remember that feeling? Do not be numb to it. Remember. I want right now, if you will raise your hand if you have sinned. Let me see those hands if you have sinned before. Now show your hands. Keep them up if you've struggled. If you have fears and you have doubts. If you need forgiveness, now take a quick look around. See those hands. You may, drop, you may lower your hands now. You may feel alone in your struggle. But you are not. This room is full of imperfect people. 
We must remember that. You may feel alone, but we all have each other. But the first thing that we must understand in order to build each other up is that when we ask that question, who am I? The answer is that I am a sinner. That I am imperfect. I was persuaded to do many things opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I came to that realization and it broke me. You want to know why? Because of who Christ was. Because of who He still is today. How could I stand in opposition to such a man that would give his life for me? Now I ask this question. Have you, have you ever noticed those kind actions, those small little things that people do that make you think, that is so kind and that is so sweet. That, that person's good at heart. I do. I notice those things at times. And, and there's this little ritual that, that Annie and I do. Every time I get the car door for her and I kind of let her in the car, I come around to my side, the driver's side, and she's already unlocked that side for me. And that tells me one thing. That tells me that, that she wanted to spare me just the three seconds that it takes to unlock the driver's side door. It's very Christ-like. It is. And, and, and she doesn't realize that probably based on her expression. But it's those small acts. There are large acts and there are small acts. But those things make you realize, wow, this person really does care about me. This person really does value me. And Christ was that kind of guy. That was who he was. His whole life, that's everything that he did. He was a servant. John chapter 13. Can I show you an example of that? Can I show you an example of that in John chapter 13? To Christ's servitude. You talk about stand-up guys. There's no better example in all of history than Jesus. A perfect example of humility and love in John the 13th chapter, just starting in verse 1. Read with me now, please. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to Him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he had said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. 
Do we see this? Christ left this example. Where he, you think about, I mean, this is before like a lot of the hygiene products we had. I mean, like these people's feet were walking around in the desert sand all the time. And Jesus took the time to just wash them off. And they're saying to him, you've taught us everything. We followed your example. And now you're lowering yourself to this? Why? And he says to show you that not one man is more important than another. No matter stature or not even if you're the son of God, are you exempt from the call to servitude? What an amazing guy. What an amazing example. And how could I oppose that? Another thing about Jesus was that he was a charitable man. He showed his compassion in Matthew chapter 14. In verse 14. He showed his compassion and love for people. God, in Jesus Christ, had unlimited power. Remember when he was tempted in the desert? Satan told him he could have all of it. And he could have had all of it. He could have taken over every kingdom on the world and crushed everyone under his boot. And force them into submission. But he did not choose that. He used his power to show love and mercy and consideration. In Matthew chapter 14 and verse Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14 through 21. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they ate and were, all were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. I could go on all day. Literally, I could present a two, three, four, five hour sermon just showing you example after example after example of how amazing Jesus is and how willing he is to go out of his way for even people who don't even know him, don't care about him, and would even kill him. And so, those are difficult things to process when you realize that you're in opposition to someone who is so great, who is such a servant, who is so compassionate and so merciful, but the hardest pill for me to swallow as a sinner was that when Jesus was walked to the cross, that he thought of me He thought of you. He thought of all of us. And that was the reason that he gave his life. He went through that excruciating pain on our behalf. He knew what he was doing so that he could give us forgiveness and reconciliation with that which is perfect. And that he could complete us through his suffering and death. And I knew that I saw that and I had said, no thank you. And many people told me in my path, As I tried to discern spiritual things, they told me, we know you're trodden by guilt, but you're just going to have to forgive yourself, Cain. Have you ever tried to forgive yourself? Honestly, is there one person in this room that can say that they've completely forgiven themselves of all imperfection? I guarantee that there is not. Forgiveness is a debt Paid not by the person that's owing the debt. 
Forgiveness is a slate wiped clean. And so, how can I forgive a debt that I myself owe? That doesn't make any sense. I owe this debt to Christ. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 bears that out. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for who? For us. For all of us. That's the debt that we owe. A life. Without the act of Christ's sacrifice, we would have no bridge between us and the divine. We would have no bridge between us and the, our Creator, with, between us and righteousness, between us and love, between us and mercy, the bridge would remain broken. We've all sinned. And that's the reason that He died. And in that way, we all deserve that death. We all deserve the cross. If God decided right now that He wanted to string up everyone in this room, He would have all authority to do that. Because we have forsaken Him. But Christ built that bridge. No religious leader has offered that. No religious leader or spiritual teacher can give what Christ gave or has given. His very life. The Buddha did not give his life. He taught suffering and the cessation of suffering. But he did not teach forgiveness. He did not teach salvation. Muhammad did not teach forgiveness. He did not offer his life as a bridge to God. There's no guru. There's no priest out there anywhere. No lofty religious leader. I can't do it. Joshua can't do it. Danny can't do it. Not a single one of you can do that. Offer that forgiveness and peace that Christ offers. Salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. He gave us a chance to be redeemed. And he paid for that with his own blood. And that redemption comes in one way. Jesus walked the earth. His teachings, His life, His his death, burial, and resurrection. Belief in that. That is the first step being bridged back to God. He came to show us, to be that proof to us. People ask all the time, Cain, I would believe if I just had just visible evidence of God. If I just had some, some evidence of God, I would believe. Jesus was that evidence. Rome, look, John chapter 1 and verse 14. Pardon me, John chapter 1 and verse 14. What was the purpose of Jesus coming here? What was the purpose of the cross? What is that message? John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. He lived here. He was wrapped in the same destructible tissue that we are. Just to show us, I love you. I'm willing to give everything for you. Please see that. And if you do see that, there's only one way. If you see that I'm a sinner, I need help. There's only one way. And that's to become a member of Christ's body. To join yourself to Him. And the way that we do that is we become a member of His church. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, it says that He purchased the church with His own blood. Do you see the connection? The price, it's the church is not the building. The church is what Christ paid for with His blood. The opportunity to exist as a person within the saved. That is the church. He established this church as the household of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 says that. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 says, this is Paul to Timothy, 
You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The church is not the building. It's the household, the people, the family, those that would accept God, the divine, the the guiding principle of their life as holy, as the only living God, as their heavenly father obtained by adoption. Ephesians chapter one and verse five. Through His Son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 5 says that. That we're adopted into the family as we accept Jesus Christ. When we join ourselves with Christ, we don't have to identify ourselves like this. We don't have to just lay down and accept this. We don't have to say, I'm just a sinner. We don't have to be broken anymore. We don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to be enslaved in the dark. And we don't have to walk like the world. We can proudly say to the question, Who am I? We can say, I am His. I belong to God. And when we do that, everything changes, doesn't it? Everything changes. You've chosen to stop living the way that you want to. And to live the way that pleases the divine, that pleases Jehovah, that pleases our God, the one who gave you everything. That's what happens when you choose to become a Christian, when you can say, I am His, when you are saved from your sins. But, the natural question is, what must I do to be saved? If I say I am His, I should also be able to say these things. So I believe in the power of the cross. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. We must also be willing to confess that Jesus is the Lord above all. So everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I also will acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10.32 We must be determined to stop sinning, to make an active effort to bridge that gap of imperfection between us and God, to better ourselves for God and for our fellow man and lastly for ourselves so that we can become who we need to be in repentance. Jesus said in Luke 13.3, repent or perish. Finally, we must symbolically die with Christ in baptism. That's borne out in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 where it says, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's the moment where you can say, I am His when you are baptized into Him. Romans chapter 6 and verses 4 through 5 is a beautiful illustration of the change that happens to someone when they choose to give up themselves, to accept Jesus, accept His sacrifice. Romans chapter 6 and verses 4 through 5 reads like this. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we most certainly will be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And that is the beauty of being a Christian. The beauty of being a Christian is that your life echoes the message of the Gospel. That you show sacrifice. And you show obedience. And that you're willing to give it all up for Jesus Christ. It's that commitment that if I'm faithful unto death, then I believe that I will receive that crown of glory. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. But what does that commitment mean? 
What does it mean to be his really and truly? Well, first thing that's going to mean in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, please, if you would just turn with me there. Matthew chapter 22 and then in verse 37. That means that I love him. I am his, so I love him. We center our lives on him. Every action that we take is considering. Is this right? Is this true? Is this in faith? We listen to that great command of Jesus in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, where he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul. That means that we're going to be committed to do the things that God would have us do. To understand Him. To get to know Him. To know who He is. That means, number one, we're going to study the Word diligently. Josh mentioned Bible reading this morning. Um, I, I, I believe he did anyway. But Bible reading is super duper important. That we are diligent in the Word. That we're studying every day as much as we can to look into the Word of God. Just, just searching for the truth. To pray to Him. To seek the counsel of God. To be in a prayerful mind. To be in union with God in our thoughts. To deny those sinful pleasures of the world for the sake of spiritual growth. Offer our daily lives to Him as a sacrifice. Secondly, down in verse 39, Jesus said, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's going to mean a few things. We're going to be honest. We're going to be kind, empathetic, compassionate. We're going to see everyone and know that they have their own struggles. We're going to treat them as equals. That means that we're going to be willing to share the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves souls whenever we can. With our best friend and with our greatest enemies. Jesus summarized the whole faith into two commands. And the purpose of those two commands is to get us on the way to heaven. That's why he came here. That's why he taught the things that he did. So that mankind could be redeemed. So that we could head back to heaven. If I am his... I can say, I am on my way to heaven. And again, so I began by quoting Paul. And I will close by quoting Paul. Again, in Acts chapter 26. I probably should have told you to bookmark that passage. But we can head on over there anyway. Acts chapter 26, and then in verses 12 through 23. Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, verses 12 through 23. In this connection... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you to kick against the pricks? And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly image, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, 
that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and what Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, I, like Paul, I saw my sin on that proverbial road to Damascus. I heard those words, Cain, Cain, why are you persecuting me? And I was crushed by my sin. But now, as I allowed that truth to come to my heart, to realize that I was a sinner, I now stand before you, renewed. Formerly a wretch, formerly a street punk, formerly just all kinds of wicked, to now. Standing before you as a young man, learning and studying to to preach the gospel as a servant to all of you, my brethren, my family, my dear friends. I'm his. And because of that, I've just been so blessed. First, I would like to ask to my brethren, have you been living in a way to which you know that you're a sinner, to which you're aware of that truth? Have you analyzed yourself to see, am I living out those commands that Jesus mentioned? Do I love God? Do I honor Him? Do I love my neighbor? Do I have that forgiveness in my heart that Christ had for me? Ask yourself, am I on the way to heaven? Further, it may never be that you never truly became a Christian. You're sitting in this audience now and you're saying, Cain... I am not His. I do not belong to Christ. And if that is the case, then now is the time. In a moment, we're going to sing a song together, and it's going to be a song of invitation. And that's going to be an invitation for you to walk to the front. I'll be standing right here. You come to me. You express your desire to be saved. And I'll do everything in my power to help discern the Word of God with you and make sure that that's what you want. to to prepare you for those waters of baptism that cleanse you of sins. The question is, are you His? If not, now is the perfect opportunity to walk forward up to the front. We offer that opportunity to give yourself to Christ completely. Do that now. As we stand and as we sing.